So grab your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. Tonight will be a little bit Bible study, a little bit sermon, and we'll get through two, maybe one and a half more chapters of Romans, and we'll be able to finish next week in Romans 15 and 16. But for tonight, we'll be in Romans chapter 14, verse 1, through chapter 15, verse 13. Um, before we read uh, that passage, I want to tell you about something I was reading about this week. Uh, it's called, and excuse the mispronunciation, but it's called Dai-Q. Dai-Q, literally number nine in Japanese. Uh, every year in Osaka, the number nine chorus performs the final movement of Beethoven's ninth symphony, Ode to Joy, a song we all know and maybe love maybe, or annoyed by in the Christmas season. The number nine chorus is 10,000 members strong. 10,000 members strong. So there's 10,000 community members, most of them untrained singers that come together and sing Ode to Joy. It is an impressive display of absolutely timeless music. Now, I'm no expert on choral music, but great choirs perhaps smaller ones usually, demonstrate a beauty and a timelessness that is rare in music today. The melodies and the counter melodies and the harmonies come together to create beautiful textures in choral music. The best of choirs contain many voices, but really they sound like one voice. They have many voices, but they sound like one voice. There is a, a melding, a sweetness, a, a, a quality that is pleasing to the ear of the listener. Not the very pinnacle of our text tonight in Romans 15, 5 through 6. Listen to what Paul says. He offers a prayer for the Roman church. He says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that... Together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that is what we'll see tonight. In the church, what what does it take for us to live in unity when there's differences of opinion and conviction? What does it take for us to together with one voice glorify God? What does it take for us to, despite differences in conviction and levels of spiritual maturity, for us to live in unity, to walk in love. And so I want to read our passage tonight. Um, We're going to read the whole thing in one shot right now. Uh, I timed it earlier this week, and it took a little less than five minutes. So I know we're not used to, in this day and age in the church, to reading um, God's word for this long. But I mean, imagine when the book of Romans was first given to the Roman church. They read the entire thing. when they first got it, and they were excited to hear it. So let's, let's listen to God's word, Romans chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Paul writes, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstain, abstains, And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. 
Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Is, it is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives, gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or you? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Verse 13, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it isn't clean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed unclean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an ob obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. God, we thank you for your word, the truth that it brings to our lives. It it reorients us. And so even as we hear it now, we're convicted and, and inspired to live for you. Help us, Lord, to learn, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. In your son's name, amen. Chapters 14 and 15, as we continue our kind of speedy overview of the rest of Romans this summer, um, is the culmination, really, of the instruction in Paul's letter. He has clarified, he's defended the righteousness of God, and then he's also shown very practically how this glorious doctrine of the righteousness of God applies to daily life. And at the risk of being repetitive, but so that it's in your heart for life. This is really a book that you should read over and over a couple times a year. At the risk of being repetitive, let's talk about what's in Romans. Romans 1, 1 through 17, the gospel as the revelation of God's righteousness. Then from 118 to 320, God's righteousness in his wrath against sin and sinners. 321 through 425, the saving righteousness of God. 51 through 839, hope as a result of righteousness by faith. 9-1 through 11:36, God's righteousness given to Israel and the Gentiles. In the section we're in, the latter part of this, 12-1 through 15:13, God's righteousness in everyday life. And David helped us unpack the beginning of that section, God's righteousness in everyday life. Now, after this, Paul will talk about his ministry, his apostleship, you know, bring out sort of the missionary support letter aspect of Romans and ask for help in getting the gospel to Spain. Then he'll wrap up the whole letter with this amazing doxology that we'll look at at next week. You see a phrase in Romans 1, and you see that same phrase again in that that doxology at the end of Romans, in Romans 16. In chapter 1, Paul says this. He says, He has received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And again, in chapter 16 in the doxology, he describes the purpose of the mystery of the gospel. And he says, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. So this phrase, the obedience of faith, in the beginning of Romans and at the end of Romans, is significant. That is to say, this phrase, the lives of those who have faith in Jesus Christ as their savior, those lives manifest obedience that flows out of faith. You see, if you believe the gospel, you ought to live a life befitting of that good news. 
Your life should be an appropriate response to such a glorious gospel given to you, revealed to you, the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. The gospel, the good news that the righteousness of God has been revealed to sinful man through Jesus Christ, it was revealed to bring about the obedience of faith. We are given the spirit of God who has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, such that we are dead to sin and alive to God, and we live out then the obedience of faith. The gospel, the good news of a Messiah given to Israel who rejected him, then extended to all the nations that Jew or Gentile all would come to faith and live out the obedience of faith. The gospel, the good news that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This gospel, this amazing reality that we see all throughout the book of Romans, over and over and over, was revealed for, Paul says, the bringing bringing about of the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith, the the presenting of your body as a living sacrifice, Romans 12, 1 and 2, that is holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. To not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That is what Paul says is a fitting response to the glorious gospel, a life of worship, a life that is a living sacrifice, a life that is, is an obedient, uh, the obedience of faith in your life. In Romans 14 and 15, Paul points out a a gaping hole in the obedience of faith in the Roman church. It's an issue he sees that is, it's ruining the, the testimony of the church and of the gospel. It's an inconsistency in their obedience of faith, so devastating, he says it has the potential of Verse, well, chapter 14, verse 20, it has the potential of destroying the work of God. Imagine a sin so ruinous that the Apostle Paul himself says it risks destroying the work of God. Well, that's what we see in here in our passage tonight. And in our passage tonight, Paul addresses this disunity in the Roman church. Believers are passing judgment on each other over a specific issue of Freedom. As we'll see, the specific issue, the situation facing the Roman church in this passage is is very unique. It's almost difficult to directly apply in in a concrete way, an exact parallel. People use this passage all the time to justify their behavior, to defend their so called Christian freedoms. Yet this text, I believe, has so much help for us tonight. Studying this this week, it hit me hard, the, the attitudes and the, the thoughts that Paul calls us to are not characteristic often of how I see others in the church. And so I hope this is of great help for us tonight, not so that we can defend our Christian freedoms, but so that we can see each other under the umbrella of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what Paul calls us to in this text, and that is in unity to each other because of Christ. We'll see tonight that true freedom in Christ is lived out in humble 
faith. And it results in unity. You see, we'll see that we must seek to first understand what our true freedom in Christ really is. And then we'll also learn how to live that freedom out in humble faith, how to live it out appropriately. And we'll see that unity results from that kind of living. Unity in the church results from that kind of living. Now, this freedom is something that Paul has already shown us in Romans. Turn with me so you can see these passages for yourself. Romans chapter 6. Let's flip over to Romans 6. Look at verses 6 and 7. Paul talks about the believer's freedom. If you'll remember, we looked at this text um, a couple quarters ago. Romans 6, 6 and 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Look at 6 verse 22. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So Paul has shown us in Romans chapter 6 specifically that we are, what, free from sin and therefore enslaved to God. Now look at chapter 7, verse 4. Paul writes, Likewise, my brothers, you, have all, you also have died to the, what, law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to one another to him who had been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Look down at verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And then down to chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So it is this freedom, freedom from our former master sin and freedom from bondage to the law to then now serve our new master righteousness as it's called in chapter six or Christ the righteous one. So free from sin free from the law, and now free to serve our new master, Christ. In Christ, we have freedom then from ceremony and from sacrifice and from prohibitions that God had designed specifically for his people Israel. And in Christ, we have freedom from the bondage of sin and its ultimate end, death. Now, if you combine these two, if you crosshatch them, we have freedom in Christ then to do anything, anything that is not sin. We have freedom in Christ to do anything that is not sin. We have freedom to enjoy the good things that God has created if it is not sin. 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 5, Paul says at this point, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God, by the word of God and prayer. You see, nothing in and of itself is, is evil. God created our world and called it good, not evil, good. 
However, our use of anything is made in this passage holy or acceptable by our discerning through God's word and by our consideration in prayer. God, should I do this? God, can I do this? God, is this what you want me to do? In other words, if we exercise our faith, if we, we live in a, in a way that is submitted to God through his word and in prayer, anything is there for our enjoyment. Our freedom is to enjoy his good gifts and it flows freely from our being in Christ and having the mind of Christ. True freedom is lived out in humble faith and it results in Christian unity. So I want to look at Romans 14 and 15 tonight um, in sort of a way that's structured. I just thought of, let's look at the situation and then let's look at the sin and then let's look at the solution. The situation first, just to understand exactly what's going on and then look at the sin and then look at the solution. So first the situation. To understand Romans 14 and 15, we first need to understand the situation. What is, what is happening in the Roman church that Paul needs to address them in this way? What's happening here? Now, as we know from our study of the book of Romans, the Roman church is in large part Gentile, uh, and there's a large minority of Jewish believers as well in this church. This is a time when the gospel of Jesus Christ is spreading far and wide. Um, as we've seen in Chapters 9 through 11, Paul has painted the landscape of the gospel's spread and in such a unique time for the church and its growth. And so already in Romans, he's made a sense of what is happening theologically between Jew and Gentile in Christ, how it is that the God of Israel would welcome in Gentiles as his people, and how it is a beautiful thing that both Jew and Gentile can be one in Christ. So in this church, you have two distinct groups in this, in this community with distinct backgrounds and experiences and even beliefs. Look at 14 verse 2. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Look at verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than, other, than another, while another esteems all days alike. So you have two distinct groups, and one believes this one set of things, and the other group believes this other set of things. So first you have Jews who are converted to Christ, their Messiah, the promised one, and they're saved from the bondage to the law and its righteous requirements. They have seen what Paul says in chapter 3, for by works of the law, no human being will, will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And again, 8.1, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so these new Jewish believers, no one understand these things. They are fully and absolutely saved. Yet for these believers who lived under the law of Moses for their whole lives, up until the point where they were converted, they were worshiping Yahweh, yet being recently converted to Christ, it is, it is difficult for them to see differently as it relates to what they eat and to the Sabbath. So we have those here who Paul calls weak in faith because they don't fully understand the freedom they have in Christ. They're weak in the faith that it takes to understand freedom in Christ truly and fully from the law. 
So you have these Jewish Christians that are abstaining from eating meat, perhaps being overly cautious uh, or overly zealous in their obedience. And they still observe the Sabbath as well and possibly other holy days and festivals. And so this group doesn't fully understand their freedom in Christ. Their, their conscience is bound by their past and probably their high view of God's law. They are fastidious yet mistaken. They're weak, yet they are absolutely redeemed. And in this Roman church, you also have Gentiles uh, who have found the mercy of God in Christ Jesus, just like the Jewish believers. These Gentile believers, they've been grafted into God's salvation plan. And they, they know nothing of God's law, except that that's what Israel held to. It's what those who followed Yahweh hold to. They understand, these Gentile believers, that in Christ, you are free to eat anything. And so they exercise that freedom. They, they probably like pork and crab. And to their understanding, every day is the same. There's no Sabbath or Day of Atonement or festival day. Every day to them is just another day to live for Jesus. So this group understands the freedom they have in Christ. Their conscience is only bound to follow Christ, their master. Sin is no longer their master and they're joyous for that. These strong believers serve, serve Christ. And they don't, like Jewish believers, have the additional attachment to the law in their past to deal with. They are free in it from this passage. It looks like they don't hesitate to express that freedom. They are strong and there's no mistaking it. Now, it might be easy to assume from this passage that to be weak in faith is to be conservative or morally strict, and that to be strong in faith is to have an unburdened conscience in as many things as possible. So kind of a, a conservatism versus just live enough to be cool, kind of two sides of Christianity sort of thing. But that is not what this passage is teaching us. Not saying one is better than the other. It's not this sort of me versus those other people at GOC or even me versus the other people at Grace Church who sit in the front. It's not what this passage is about. What is more obvious here is a, is a clash of cultures a difference based on cultural background, and it really shines a spotlight on the core issue in the situation. Both Jewish and Gentile believers, both groups of believers are struggling to grasp their freedom in Christ and also how to exercise it properly in relation to each other. It's an interpersonal situation here. So generally in this Roman church, you have two groups. You have the Jewish believers who are weak in their understanding of their freedom in Christ. And then you have Gentile believers who understand their freedom, but they don't know how to exercise it properly or appropriately. So that's the situation. That's how we understand the situation in Romans 14 and 15. Let's look now at the sin. The sin. These two groups are in conflict. They don't quietly accept their differences, but we, we can infer from what Paul says here that they are actively and vocally in, in conflict. They're at odds. Over and over, Paul instructs them not 
to quarrel over opinions. Verse 1. Verse 3, the strong despise the weak who abstains, and the weak pass judgment on the strong. Verse 10, Paul says to the weak, why do you pass judgment on your brother? And he says to the strong, or you, why do you despise your brother? And then look at verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. So Grace on Campus, the core issue, the, the sin here is not who is right and who is wrong. In fact, Paul sides with the strong in this text. He says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Verse 20, he says, everything is indeed clean. Jesus himself says in Mark 7, verse 15, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. In other words, the only thing that's evil is not outside of you. What you take to eat, it's your heart that is evil. So on the issue itself, the strong are correct. For those who are in Christ, there is no food that is inherently unclean. In this case, even meat from animals, the law had prohibited before for God's people, is fine. In Christ, there is no case for a Sabbath, no one day of rest, not one more holy than the others in terms of restriction and complete obedience to Sabbath law. Paul seems to hone in on the issue of eating meat. Here you have the strong saying, I have the freedom to eat meat and I I don't accept those who don't eat meat because those who don't are being a little unreasonable and maybe even legalistic. And then you have some people who are eating meat, some some strong people, maybe even more on the fringe, and they're saying something like, I not only have the freedom to eat meat, I can do whatever I want. And then you have the weak saying on this other side, I I, I don't eat meat because in fact I think it's it's sinful potentially. And I don't accept Christians who do so because they're being unfaithful to God. And in fact, they're probably liberal in a lot of other areas. You see similar but different issues in 1 Corinthians and in Galatians. And in those passages, like in this passage here, the core issue is the believer's lack of ability to understand their freedom in Christ or to exercise that freedom in a way that builds others up. In other words, there may be people who, in these passages, understand their freedom in Christ, but the way that they exercise it, the way they practice that, is inconsiderate, rude, or causes a brother to stumble. That's what Paul is addressing here. Ultimately, this affects the unity of the church. You've got two sides at war with one another, and they can't come to terms with each other. These believers are judging and despising each other, the strong despising the weak, looking down on them for their weakness. The weak judging the strong, they're judging them for their liberality. And really in this passage, despising and judging are the same thing, really, just from kind of two different perspectives. They're both not accepting each other at the core. And so to Paul, the core issue, the the sin is that both groups are judging each other. 
To put it negatively, the way that Paul does in this passage, both groups are not accepting one another. This is Paul's issue with the Roman church here, that this disunity is not characteristic of God's church. This is not a living sacrifice acceptable to God. This kind of disunity we see in this passage is not behavior fitting to the gospel of God's mercy to all people. And so Paul very lovingly shepherds and he directs these believers. He instructs them and motivates them and shows them Christ. And so we've seen the situation and then the sin. And let's look at the solution very quickly. We'll overview this passage in four different sections under the solution. These are four different exhortations toward unity in community. Four exhortations toward unity in community. First, we'll see in chapter 14, verses 1 through 12, we'll see accept one another. Accept one another. Accept one another. Receive one another. Welcome one another in. Now, this isn't receive like receive an airdrop. This is receive almost to, to welcome into one's own home to accept, to receive in a way that that is loving and warm. Paul gives these believers three reasons to not judge one another, but to accept one another. First, in verse three, Paul points out that the person you despise, that you judge, God has welcomed him, so then you should welcome him. Turn to Romans 5. Look at Romans 5, 1 and 2. Paul writes there, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We've obtained access by faith into this grace. We've been welcomed by God. And so Paul says, because God has welcomed him, you ought to welcome him as well. You ought to accept him. Secondly, Paul says in verse four that the Lord is this other brother's master and is able to make him stand. Turn to Romans 8, verses 31 through 35. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And so no man can bring a judge, can bring a charge against us as believers. We ought not to judge each other because God will make me stand, God will make you stand, and God will make even the believer that you are judging right now, he will make him stand. And even in final judgment, why? Because on the merit of Jesus Christ, who is interceding for us, God will make us stand. Thirdly, in verse 10, Paul says, uh, as a reason why believers should accept one another, 
we all will stand before the judgment seat of God. It's a level playing field. And so Paul makes this case that believers have no right to judge or despise one another, but that they should accept one another because God has welcomed your brother that you judge, and we have all gained access to God. Secondly, God is able to make that brother stand even if you're judging him. And thirdly, we will all stand before God on that final day. And so it's a level playing field. Paul says, accept one another because of these reasons. You see, when you don't accept others, you are judging. You are judging others as if you are God. You're gatekeeping in the church for whether or not others should be welcomed. You're assessing this other person as if it's not God who sovereignly sustains both you and him. You're judging in place of God himself himself as if your evaluation is what matters. But Paul sets us straight here and shows us we all have been welcomed by God. We all are made to stand by God, our master, and we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So... All of us in God's church are on a level playing field and we ought to accept one another. Paul makes clear that this humble acceptance of others, this this welcoming, this receiving, does not mean that you have to change your convictions on the spot to do this. Especially on preferential matters. What you eat, what you drink, where you get what you eat, whether it's from a a chicken sandwich from a Christian place or chicken sandwich from somewhere in Louisiana. You don't need to change your preference on any of those things. It matters more serious. Where Where you put your kids in school. What you think about dancing. What you think about playing cards, kind of a 1990s sort of version of that. So what your career is and how much time that takes away from ministry to where you go for grad school, all of these things, Paul's not saying change your preference so that someone else is pleased. He's saying accept your brother that might have a difference at the very baseline. That is Christian. Paul also says, in everything you do, you should be fully convinced in your own mind. Look at verse six. He says, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So on both cases, in both groups, these believers are doing their own thing and they're doing it in honor of the Lord. They're fully convinced in their own minds. So if you are living unto the Lord, you're living quorum Deo, there should be this sweet spot in your humility that allows you to, to hold your convictions still, even on certain preferences. Yet you should still be able to have this sweet spot in your humility that you're able to accept others for their differing preferences. And so whereas before there were only two kinds of people judging each other, Paul's making room here. He's he's inserting categories of people in between 
one he's creating that would say, I eat meat, but I accept Christians who don't. And he has another category on the other side of things that says, I don't eat meat, but I accept Christians who do. And so Paul says at the core, what you ought to do in your obedience of faith in this situation is to accept one another. On a baseline level, accept one another, welcome one another, receive one another warmly. The second exhortation is in chapter 14, verses 13 through 23. Build one another up. Build one another up. Paul builds on verses 1 through 12 and focuses in his instruction now here on the stronger brother, the group of Gentile believers. He says essentially, hey, I, I agree with you. I'm with you. Theologically, doctrinally, you're, you're right. Nothing is unclean. But, Paul's saying, that's not how consciences work. So he says again, therefore, let us not pass judgment any longer. But he goes further on in this section. And he wants these Roman believers to also not just accept one another, welcome one another, but he also wants the stronger believers to also decide to, to resolve to never put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. And instead, Paul says in verse 19, to pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. He's saying, don't tear each other apart, build each other up. Don't passively, passive aggressively war against each other, pursue what makes for peace. And Paul's saying here, certainly don't purposefully cause another person to stumble. And so in this second section, Paul is creating sort of more space, and he's creating a final category of believer here, the stronger brother, and he says to the stronger brother. So let's, first, let's review sort of the categories of people, so to speak. You have the strong believer who despises, did not accept the weak. On the way other side, you have the weak who judges the strong, doesn't accept his brother. Paul created room in the middle in verses 1 through 12. He says, there's someone who is strong who should accept the weak. And then he also says, there should be a weak brother who also accepts the strong. And now, Paul creates this final category right in the middle. It's a strong brother who abstains. He abstains. And Paul urges the strong here, ideally, he says to the strong brother, you you get to this place where you can defer on your preference and decide never to put a stumbling block in front of your brother, where you know, you, you know, you're convinced, you see in scripture, you can eat meat because you have freedom, but you understand it is better to abstain from eating meat because, Paul says in this section, Walking in love to your brother is better than any barbecue you can ever have. Paul expounds on this idea of the stronger in faith causing his brother to stumble. He says, verse 15, that if you have a brother who is grieved by what you eat, 
He says, you are no longer walking in love. You're no longer walking in love if you grieve your brother simply by eating meat. Think of Jesus' words, John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And Paul's saying in this passage, if you are gonna decide to eat meat and your brother is grieved by that, you are no longer doing what Jesus said you should do to be his disciple. You're purposefully deciding to to disobey the Lord and Savior's command to, to walk in love, to love one another. Paul doubles down on the peril of causing a brother to stumble. Verse 15, he says, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Verse 20, he says, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. That brings some significance, some some gravity to the situation. You could be destroying the work of God if you choose to cause a brother to stumble by what you eat or what you drink. And then most importantly, he uses logic in this section that the strong might actually use to justify their, their, their actions. But Paul uses their own logic and uses it against the strong. Look at verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. It's spiritual. It's about righteousness, about peace, about joy in the Holy Spirit. And so the strong might say, with this kind of logic, they might say, well, the kingdom is not about eating and drinking, so the weak shouldn't make such a big deal about it then, right? If the kingdom is spiritual, it shouldn't matter what I eat. You shouldn't be worried about what I eat. You shouldn't be worried that I eat meat. But Paul says here, the kingdom is not about eating and drinking. So strong, brother, give up your right so that what the kingdom really is about will be furthered. Because the kingdom is about righteousness and peace and joy. So give up your right for the sake of your brother because the kingdom will then actually be furthered. And Paul says in verse 18, whoever thus serves Christ in this way by giving up what what he could have is acceptable to God and approved by men. Paul is saying this strong faith that you have, great, keep it, keep it up but there's no need to manifest it, no need to show it off, no need to flex your freedoms. Instead, hold your faith humbly, he says in the section. Keep it between yourself and God. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way. He says, the proof that you have real Christian liberty is in respect to something that someone else may feel bound by is that you do not need to exercise that liberty and you do not flaunt it. And get this, he says, the moment you need to exercise your liberty may be the moment you are in bondage all over again. Paul says here, in fact, blessed is the one whose conscience is clear in holding his conviction. So again, keep that conviction. Keep your faith strong. 
but walk in love and build your brother up. In the third section, verse, uh, in chapter 15, verses 1 through 7, we see the third exhortation, bear with one another's weaknesses. So accept one another and then build one another up and now bear with one another's weaknesses. Paul in this section focuses on the strong again. He puts additional responsibility on the strong. And remember now, he counts himself in this group. So he's part of that group. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So for Paul, it's one priority or the other in the situation. You either are deciding to bear with the failings of the weak or you're seeking to just please yourself. And here he calls the strong to bear with the failings of the weak, to put aside pleasing yourself. And the reasoning here is simple. Paul says, look, in verse three, for this is what Christ has done for you. This is to have a sense of long suffering, to to empathize, to identify with and walk alongside, to be patient with the weak and their failings and their lack of understanding of their freedom in Christ or for their differences in conviction, to be patient with them even if they judge you. I think most of you guys are probably in the category of the strong. The way that you think about your life as a young person and the way that you live your life in college And I would encourage you to think about your attitude toward those who are weak in their faith in relation to specific issues. The one who has demonstrated what it is to bear with the failings of the weak, par excellence, in a way greater than anyone ever has, is Jesus Christ, the righteous, God's own son, who bore the constant and utter failings of the weak, the sins of many, And who were the weak? You and I. We were the weak that Christ bore the failings of. This Christ, our Savior, is our example in this text. He bore our sins that we might be redeemed. And now it is our very reasonable responsibility to bear with the failings of those who are weak in their faith. And Paul offers up that sort of early benediction, that prayer that God would help these believers live in harmony with one another, with a singular voice that glorifies God. And he ends this section right here, right where he started in 14.1. He says in uh, 15 verse 7, therefore welcome or accept or receive one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Christ has welcomed you, and that's an example for you to welcome others in the church for the glory of God. But Christ's work, his welcoming work, this text shows us, is also at the very heart of Paul's instruction. It lays the groundwork of what he's saying. So it leads us to the last section, 15, 8 through 13. And the fourth exhortation is to recognize the work of God. Recognize the work of God. Here in this last section, Paul displays God's work in reconciling Jews and Gentiles to himself. You see, what what man, what those in the church fail to do in this passage, God has already done perfectly. You see, God has brought Jew and Gentile together. He's brought strong and weak together to be one in Christ. In this section, Paul 
points to prophecy in the Old Testament that highlights this work of God. As if to say, recognize God's work. See what God has done. See that what God has done lays the groundwork for what I'm telling you to do. If God has reconciled Jews and Gentiles to himself, Jew or Gentile, strong or weak, you should be reconciling each other to yourselves. Accept one another because God has accepted you. Build each other up, bear with one another, and now rejoice together. Look at verse 10. Again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. His people, Israelites, Jewish Christians now in this case. This is God's plan for redemption. Paul sees the disunity in the Roman church through this lens. You see, every interpersonal issue, every disunity, every conflict, every disconnect that you and I are a part of in the church needs to be seen through the lens of God's redemptive plan, God's kingdom, because it will help us align our feelings, our words, our attitudes, even our preferences toward others in a God-word way. When we recognize God's great plan of redemption and let it be our compass, we will pursue unity and accept one another and build each other up. We see God's incredible work in redemptive history, saving and redeeming many among his own people, Israel, then extending his grace and mercy to to us, to Gentiles, through Jesus Christ. If we see that, we recognize it, we will, in response, defer and bear with one another and love one another and receive one another as God has loved us. Just a couple points of application as we think through Romans 14 and 15. First, to the weak, to the weak. Maybe you're sitting here and you feel like in some situations that might be you. The implication here is, sure, accept your brother. But there's an implication in in Romans, and I would say in, in the New Testament, if you're weak, get stronger, grow. Grow in your understanding of your freedom in Christ. The full force of the book of Romans is behind this. This, The scriptures are behind this. Don't sell short what your Savior has accomplished for you. Freedom from the law and freedom from sin. To the weak, grow in your understanding of your freedom in Christ. Don't don't stay the way you are. Grow in your conviction. I, I would say it this way. Grow in your faith. Grow in your trust of your Savior. To the strong, I would say this, don't undo your own strength by imposing it on others, by flexing it, by holding it over others. Build up the weak. Demonstrate your freedom in Christ through your love, not your arrogance. Show the weak from the scriptures. Don't just tell them, I'm free to do this. Show them where you get that. Verse that's 5.14, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. To the strong, pray for your brother. 
And if nothing else, consider Paul's instruction here to walk in love by being willing to give up what in your flesh you might insist on. And in fact, may the only thing you insist on be that your brother doesn't stumble. Insist on that. Insist not on your right, not on your freedom, but insist on in this situation, I will not cause my brother to stumble. Insist on that. And then to both sides, I would say, learn how to defer. How to defer. In that instant, in that moment, may it be your first instinct not to judge, not to jump to conclusions, but to assume the best of others and to be gracious, to be, to be winsome. Recognize God's work in other people's lives. Affirm God's work in other people's lives. Encourage others. I see God working in your life. Praise God. And then when you see areas of weakness in others, be slow to speak. Be quick to pray and to listen. And then look for opportunities to build others up. If you can do it kindly, if you can do it appropriately, if you can do it gently, and if you can do it humbly. That's Romans 14 and 15. Grace on campus, I would encourage you tonight. I would, I would urge you tonight. Understand your freedom in Christ and then live it out in humble faith and see the unity that will result from that in God's church. Let's pray together.